good to see you all. Uh, I'm going to pray before we jump in. We're in a series talking about God and his love for us, and uh, this is our third week in that series, and we'll finish up with this next week and then uh, go into some some new stuff that I'm excited about as well. But uh, let me pray for us as we begin our time. Father, I thank you that you are present here in this room, that you love us as we've been reflecting on, as we've been looking at, that you love us, you are for us, you want to help us, you want to enter into our lives, you care for us. And that's true for everybody that is in this room. And so I pray even now you would let that love be poured into our hearts, let that love become more real to us, that by your power and your grace you would open up our eyes to see, you would open up our hearts to experience and to feel that your love would, even as we prayed last week, would come and rest on us in this room as we spend time looking at what you say to us. God, we need you, and I ask even now that you would open our hearts to receive. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, underneath Underneath a lot of the different problems that we have, underneath a lot of the different stresses that we have, underneath a lot of the different worries that we have is guilt. And we don't often think about that. So probably you don't, I mean, may, maybe you do, and, and, some, and I'm not trying to discount that if that's your experience, but, but most people don't come in here probably today feeling really guilty probably don't come in feeling, man, I'm just so guilty right now. Maybe if you had an interesting weekend, maybe you come in here feeling like that. But most of us don't, that's not a word that we usually use to describe our, our experience. But, under, but what, here's how we experience guilt. Here's, here's what it, where we do experience or where we find it in. We find it in feeling kind of a low self-esteem. So if you feel bad about yourself, or if you feel that there's something not good in you, or something not right in you, or a word that is talked about a lot right now is shame. So if you feel it in shame, and I know in, uh, this, anyone can feel this, but I think it's kind of more common, or at least women are more uh, aware of that feeling, is a sense of, man, I, I don't belong, or may, maybe there's not worth, or there's not value, or I, I don't know if I have acceptance. Maybe you feel it in that, again, that something is wrong and something's not okay. Or a lot of times for guys or for ladies, anyone can feel this, but I think kind of maybe the flip side of shame where guys feel more often is a, a, a need to feel that we have to prove ourselves. And something's not okay right now. Maybe there's some sense of failure in my life or some sense of I'm not quite where I want to be in my life or some sense of inadequacy in my life and I need to prove myself, whether that's at work or, or, or with friends or whatever it is, that I, I need to be better. I want to do better. I want to accomplish more. This is why guys often have that midlife crisis and all, or even I think, you know, it's been talked about there's the the quarter-life crisis that happens, so you hit 25, and you're like, oh no, my life is over, which people that are 40 are like, you are stupid, and then they say, I know, that's my problem, okay? 
But it's, it's those feelings, we don't, we don't usually articulate it as guilt, but those feelings of something is not okay with me, something's wrong with me, that I, I believe there's something wrong with me, or other people believe that there's something wrong with me, that there's something in me not okay. So we feel that in all sorts of different constellation of words, whether it's proving ourselves, or the stress, or the burden, or all of that different stuff is how that gets played out. And that's a hard experience to go through, right? I mean, I'm not trying to make light of that or tell you you're all awful for feeling that way and make you feel more guilty. It's a hard, it's a hard experience to feel those things emotionally inside of us. And some of us have lived with that for a long time. And some of us, that's a daily thing. I don't have to try to convince you that there's some sort of guilt or proving or inadequacy. You're like, yes, I, I know we feel that, and it's hard. That's a hard battle because it can show up in all sorts of things. It can show up at work, and it can show up when we talk to our parents, or it can show up with our kids and how we parent. It can show up with all sorts of things that there's so many opportunities to feel. Something's wrong with me, or other people perceive there's something wrong with me. And we want to be free from that. We don't like that. We want to be free from that emotional experience, from the way that it affects us. We want to be free from that. And, and part of the way that we try to be free from that, or, or part of, I guess, maybe how you can see that we want to be free from that, is in our culture right now, and this isn't like new as in today, but it's been around for a while, there's such a focus on self-improvement, Right? whether that's life hacking blogs or podcasts or books that are telling you how you can get a little bit better or level up or whatever it is, TED Talks and things that help us go, hey, if you figure this out, if you kind of unlock this secret, you can be better. You can Some of the best-selling books and the best-selling stuff is to tell us you can improve yourself. Why would we identify with that so much if we didn't feel that there was something wrong with us? I mean, the self-improvement or self-help industry is a multi-million, probably billion-dollar industry because we feel there is something wrong. So we identify with self-improvement because we want to be free from feeling that there is something wrong. Or here's another example just to help us kind of connect with this, that we, we feel that there's something wrong with us, and we want to be free from that. One of the ways that we see that show up is in social media. We want to be free from feeling that there's anything wrong with us. And so we've got social media with like buttons and heart buttons. And I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm older now. So TikTok buttons, whatever that uses, I don't know. You know, and some of you don't know who that is. Only some people laugh. So that shows the age of our church. Um, we're getting old. Uh, but here's, here's just an article on this from the BBC. This was uh, last year around this time, social media apps are deliberately addictive to users. And this was the person that invented the like button on Facebook. They said this, uh, Leah Perlman, co-inventor of Facebook's like button, said she had, become, she had become hooked on Facebook because she'd begun basing her sense of self-worth on the number of likes that she had. When I needed validation, I go to check Facebook, she said. I'm feeling lonely. Let me check my phone. I'm feeling insecure. Let me check my phone. And so the, she, she, this inventor of the like button says, I, I realized it had become this thing where I feel some insecurity. I feel some loneliness. I feel some need for validation. And what do I do? I go to social media. I go to Facebook. I go to Instagram to help. And by the way, if you're just, just so you know, if you're like Facebook, <laughs> that's just old people. Facebook owns Instagram. So ha. So um, 
just in case, you know, you were kind of feeling uppity, like no one uses Facebook anymore. Uh, okay, so, <clears throat> and they probably own more than that. They own everything, okay? So, they, but there's that sense of, man, I need to alleviate the feelings of something's wrong with me. So I need self-improvement. So I need a like. I mean, what if you put out your pictures on there? You put out your quote on there. You put out your thoughts on there. And there was no likes, no hearts, no nothing. You'd probably go, that kind of is lame. But, you know, you're resilient. You try again. And then nothing. Like if Facebook got, do you know that, that this is true? Like Facebook and, and all the other technologies, that they've deliberately built the technology. That was the headline of the article. They deliberately built it to tap into our psyche knowing that we will be addicted because we need those dopamine hits of, ah, someone liked it. Why, why, what is it about our psychology? What is it about us that they know we can addict people, which means more time on the phone, which means more, et cetera, et cetera. What, what is it about us that they know if I get a like or a heart or a share, woohoo, if I get that, I'm going to get a dopamine hit because we want, we want our guilt relieved. We want to be free from the feeling that something is wrong with us and something as small as a thumbs up does a little bit of it for us. We want to be free so much. We want to be free so badly from the feelings of something is wrong with me. Something's I need to prove. I need, we want to be free from that, but it's hard, right? It's hard, which is why technology, you've got to keep coming back. It doesn't work once on your phone. That's why we stay on our phones all the time. It's great to be free from guilt. It's great to feel approved. It's great to feel accepted. It's great to feel secure and good and validated and worth. That's a great feeling, but it's hard to keep. It's hard to get. It's hard to maintain because we sin in reality and we fail and we compare ourselves to other people and we see where we don't measure up and it's constantly brought before our attention over and over again. So here's our question. How can we be free from the haunt of guilt? How can we be free from guilt? Even if that's not how you maybe walked in here thinking about the, those issues or those kind of insecurities or those burdens, but how can we be free from guilt? And to understand that, first we need to answer this question, which is just where does it come from? Where does guilt come from? If we want to be free from it, we have to know its source. We have to know the origin. Here's where we're told it comes from. We're told that guilt comes from expectations that other people have on us or that we have for ourselves. So if you feel guilty or you feel shame or you feel some sense of low self-esteem or some sense of I lack worth or I've got to prove myself or any of those things that we talked about, if you feel that, here's where we're told that that comes from. You are listening to other people's expectations on you. Don't listen to other people's expectations. Be true to yourself. Don't listen to other people's expectations. No one can tell you what's right for you. You do you. And we're told that the place that guilt comes from is other people have put expectations on us. And if you want to be free from guilt, if you want to be free from that stuff, get rid of those expectations that people have put on you. Or we're told that maybe it comes from the expectations that we have for ourselves. 
And maybe that's from your parents, or it's from your past, or it's from some traumatic experience, but something, some expectation that you've put on yourself that you're not living up to, and that is where your guilt comes from, and you need to realize, man, that's not true, that's not the case. You are, like maybe, maybe in a particular incident, you're feeling some sort of guilt. Maybe you're feeling, like I know moms, you know, there's, I don't know why there's not a term called dad guilt, but you know, people talk about mom guilt and, and people feel, oh man, I'm not doing good enough here. I'm not doing good enough here. And the, the solution to that or what solves that is to be told, no, you are good. You are awesome. You are taking care of it. You do have it under control. You are great. Those are the ways that we are told where guilt comes from. Expectations that we have on ourselves or expectations that other people have put on us. But here's the problem. If you think that that's the source of guilt, then you won't actually be able to get rid of it. You'll stay in it. Because if you misidentify the source, you'll misidentify the solution. And if you think guilt just comes from false expectations that people have put on you or that you've put on you, you'll stay stuck ultimately. Because if that was true, if those things were true, if that's where guilt come from, just false expectations that others have on you or that you have on you, it'd be pretty easy to just go, oh, I just need to read one little self-help book or one little blog and done, now I'm good to go. But here's the thing, we know there is actually something going on in there that's not okay. And so it doesn't work with the like button or a little self-improvement or just to say it's an expectation thing. Here's what the Bible says. Where does guilt come from? Here's what it is. Not a popular answer. It comes from reality. It comes from the place that there actually is something wrong with us. It comes from the truth that there is some standard that we have failed. It comes from the truth that there actually is something not okay. I know, like I said, that's not popular, but that's where guilt actually comes from. Here's what Romans says. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Now look at the words that it uses of us. It says that we are ungodly, it says that we are sinners. It says that we are enemies. So where does guilt come from? What the Bible says is there's actually something wrong with us. What the Bible says is that before Jesus does a work in us, that here is what describes us. We are sinners. We are enemies. Now, we don't like those terms, and we don't like to think of ourselves that way. I remember one time I had a conversation with a woman, this was several years ago, who said, I am not an enemy of God. How could you say that? And as kindly, as gently as I could, I'm not saying that. Paul is saying that and has said that our position is that we are enemies of God. Now, we don't 
like to think of ourselves in that way. We like to think that there's absolute goodness in us and purity in us and there's nothing wrong with us and I'm great and I'm awesome and everything about me is beautiful and wonderful and, and man, I am the best. We don't like to think of ourselves as enemies. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. That's not a great word that people like to use. And this week in the news, Harvey Weinstein, who you probably have heard of him, hopefully you don't know him personally, but he's, um, you know, he's an awful person, right, that has sexually abused and raped women and all sorts of awful things. And his lawyer in his defense this week said this, Harvey Weinstein's lawyer says, he's a sinner, not a rapist. Now, the point that she was trying to make is to say he hasn't done these crimes, and then she went on to say there's a difference between crimes and sins, which is true. There's things that God considers sinful that aren't considered criminal. I don't think that's necessarily what she was getting at, but, but her point is he hasn't done these things. He's just a sinner. But that's what we think of when we think of the word sinner, is someone like this. So when the Bible says that we are sinners, we think Harvey Weinstein, that's not me. That's what we think, right? We don't think I'm a sinner, I'm an enemy, I'm not that person, don't put me up on the screen. Which is why I think this term is really unhelpful, ungodly. Because you know what ungodly means? Think about just, just think about the breakdown of the word there. To say God and I'm ungod. So if you think about ungodly, probably we normally think about behavior, but it's a relational term. If my name's Caleb, so if someone were to say, hey, you know, who, you know what I'm like? I'm uncalebly. I would go, that's really rude. I don't like you describing your, please call yourself a sinner. Don't like define yourself against me. But if somebody says, I am un-you, and this is what the Bible is saying that we are, that we are ungodly. It's a relational term that says we are in some ways defining ourselves against God. We are living our lives saying, yes, okay, maybe, you know, the Bible teaches God's our father, God's our creator, God has made us, so therefore our lives should be lived to be defined by him, to be lived in worship of him, to be lived in relation to him. And ungodly means I'm living my life ignoring him. I'm living my life, maybe it's outright I reject him, but I'm living my life on him. I'm pursuing, like think about just your life. You've got goals that you're pursuing. You've got interests that you're pursuing. You define yourself in certain ways of how you know that you, know, you are who you are. You've got loves that you have, stuff that you, man, your affections and your heart is set on. That might be a person, it might be your kids, it might be your work, it, stuff that you love, stuff that you're really building your life around. Is that God? Like in your heart of hearts, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but in your heart of hearts, in your heart of hearts, is God the center of everything that you are, everything you live for, every way you define yourself, what your heart is set on? Does he consume you in your day? If not... Those are the seeds, and that's the essence of ungodliness. It is that I'm actually at the center of my life, and other things are at the center of my life, and I have a relational problem. See, think about God as a person, not just as a concept, not just as an idea, not just as a, a moral code or something to live by, but think about God as a person. 
And when God is a person and you think about how is my life lived in relation to him? Is it revolving around him? Is it about him? See, if we think about sin as just doing bad things and sometimes really awful things that make the news, if that's what we think sin is or an enemy is, most of us, probably some of you would go, yeah, man, I'm there, but most of us aren't going to be able to find ourselves there. But if we think about sin as relational, if we think about it as where am I with God? I've used this before, but it's just to me the best thing I can think of. But my mom, man, she would let she would let anything go that I could ever do. Any, I mean, she doesn't matter. I mean, I could kill someone, and she would help me bury the body. And she would be upset. She would, you know, be a little sad. But she would say, "Hey, your family, your family, and so, and I'm for you, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be in this together." This is how my whole this is a lot of my family is like this, okay? Where it's like, I mean, I don't want to, this is hypothetical, so in case the recording, but I mean, theoretically, we've hidden fugitives, we have covered up crimes, and by we, I'm talking about my extended family, not myself personally, but this has happened for the family. But if I don't call my mom, oh my gosh, like she will flip because she feels relationally the worst thing you could do isn't the crimes or the, the sins that you commit. The worst thing you could do is turn your back on me. The worst thing that you could do is be relationally not connected to me. We know that intuitively, right? That that is the worst stuff that we can do. Like when you're, if, if you just stop talking to somebody, I mean, if you're really mad at someone, maybe you're going to scream at them. But if you're really mad at somebody, it's cold shoulder. It's just, you're dead to me, right? Which, you're dead to me doesn't mean I'm going to yell at you. You're dead to me means I'm just done with you. You're just out of my life. I'm going to cut you out. Now, this is, how, this is how the Bible actually defines sin as the core of what sin is, is it's being ungodly. It's living our lives not defined by him, the God that loves us and cares for us more than my mother, the God that brings us into his family and says, man, you are mine. And we say, okay. And we go about living life, maybe not thinking we're being an enemy, but we're just ignoring it. So where does guilt come from? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says guilt comes from the reality. The reality that we are in the wrong relationally. The Bible says that guilt comes from the fact that we have something wrong with us as it relates to God. And there's a hauntingness of that where we feel that. We feel something is not quite right and I'm living my life and man, I'm not living in connection with him. Even if we don't put those words to it, that's where the Bible says that guilt comes from. But what does God do with our guilt? Because he doesn't leave us there. God wants to help us in our guilt. God wants to, and you know, I think for some of you, maybe this word is, is what you have been praying for and asking for, and I think God wants this for you. God wants to release us. He wants to release us from our guilt. So what does God do with our guilt? If we've got this relational problem, maybe you think, well, can't just God forgive that? 
He's a loving God. Can't God just forgive? Can't he just kind of say, okay, we've got this problem. You're ungodly. You're an enemy. You're a sinner. Can't God just say, okay, done? But no, he can't because he's a just God. None of us want any, like, you don't want Harvey wants, you know, can't we just say, hey, Harvey, it's all right. You know, no harm, no foul. You're good. We don't want, we don't want people to do that with anyone when we go, there's something wrong with this. We want justice, and God is a perfect God, and so there must be justice. God can't just say, no big deal, because he's not just a loving God and a forgiving God. He is a just God. So what does God do with our guilt? And back to what we looked at, here's what it says that he does. Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the sinners, for the enemies, that Christ died. God doesn't want us to sit in our guilt. He wants to do something about it. God doesn't want you to experience all the different things that we talked about. He doesn't want you to have it. He wants to do something about it. And what it says that he does is that Christ died for our guilt. Now, I love this next line because he says, rarely will someone die for a just person. For a good person, perhaps someone might dare to die. Now, here's what this is saying. We know, right? You know that sacrifice is, is one of the, I mean, that is like the pinnacle of love, right? When someone is willing to die for someone else, we know, man, that, that is as good as it gets. I mean, this is why many of the movies that we love, that we're drawn to, the stories, whether those are kids' stories or, or they're things that, that are, you know, superhero movies, or we love when someone dies for another person because it's a rarity. It's perhaps someone might dare to do it. We know someone dying for another person. That's as beautiful as it gets. That's as loving as it gets. The, the highest grossing movie now of all time is Avengers Endgame. Spoiler alert's coming. Uh, sorry. Uh, this is Hawkeye and um, Scarlett Johansson, but what's her name? Oh, Black Widow. And she's, she's, got to, she's got to die for him. People are walking out. Sorry. Um, she's, got, <laughs> she's got to die for him because of, and just this scene is showing how much she loves him. They're friends, but how much she loves him. And it's one of the most moving scenes of the movie. But this is the highest grossing movie of all time. So if you really want to be a highest grossing film, you've got to have two sacrifices, which is Iron Man. And this is from one of the movie posters. It says, one last sacrifice. And then because people are unemployed or not busy, there's a lot of fan art, which is sacrifice showing him. Or this one, sacrifice. Or this one, which is legends never die. And it's because they're fake characters. They never die either. It's fine. Come on. It's been out for like a year, okay? So. <laughs> it moves us, though. I mean, this is like a three-hour movie. It's got two beautiful sacrifices. It's making billions of dollars because there's something in us that identifies with sacrifice. When someone is willing to go the distance, when someone is willing to die, or let's take it out of this. Let's talk about real life. Recently had the anniversary of September 11th, right? And this is just the headline from this new 9-11 documentary honors first responders who made the ultimate sacrifice. We know, man, we are moved when people say, I will give my life for you. When people say, I will die to save you. We know that that's the ultimate act 
of love. We know that's the ultimate act of I'm for you. We know that's the ultimate thing that could be done for somebody. And what the Bible says of what Jesus does for our guilt is that he dies for us. He sacrifices for us. And let me just say this. If, if you came in here and uh, most people in our country and in our day, they believe in God. And most people would say, I believe in a God of love. But if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, you don't believe in a God that is even any better than Iron Man. Because we know, we know as human beings that the highest form of love is sacrifice. But if you don't have a concept of God that's sacrificed for you, what kind of a God of love is that? It's just something that I think wherever, if you're kind of someone kind of searching spiritually and you believe in God or spirituality and think that there's some sort of loving force, did that loving force die for you? If not, Iron Man's a better choice to worship. What does God do with our guilt? What it says is that he died for us, he sacrificed for us. But listen, it goes, it, it, it goes more in depth than that. Because what Paul says is, rarely will someone die for a good person. Rarely will someone die to save their people. But what did Jesus do? God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we're still sinners, Jesus didn't come to die to save the good guys. He came to save the sinners, the enemies. No one died for Thanos in the movie. We would have walked out. We would, what kind of weird, twisted movie is this? If Iron Man said, Thanos, I'm actually going to die for you. We'd go, this is dumb. What is, like, is the movie guy back there messing with the real or what's happening? No one dies for the enemies. And that's what Paul's point is. Paul's point is to say, God proved his love for us. He proved it. He showed it beyond someone dying for a good person, someone dying for their country, someone dying for their family, someone dying for their loved ones. God proved his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While, I love that word, while we're still sinners, because this isn't even, man, I cleaned up my act, then I came to God, and, I, and it's, not, it's not sometimes in movies or maybe in, in your life, somebody says, yeah, I've got a past, and somebody says, it doesn't matter if you've got a past, like it just matters where you are right now, you know, but I've got all these things, my, it doesn't matter about your past, it's just me and you, right now, you know, I'm thinking like now romantic movies or whatever, right, but it's just like, it doesn't matter about your past, but that's not what this says, this says, wow, we were still sinners. While we were enemies of God, while we were in the middle of our sin, while we were ungodly, while we were defining our lives apart from him and away from him, with other, while we loved other things and ignored him, while Christ died for us. He substituted himself for us. That's what it means that he died for us because of our ungodliness, because of our being an enemy, we should die on the cross. We, the penalty, the Bible says, of sin, the wages of sin is death. But Christ died for us. Meaning instead of us dying, he substituted himself and he died. Christ died for us. This is what he, this is what he says. What does God do with our guilt? He forgives it. 
He dies for it. He substitutes himself in our place. Listen, what would it be like to know in your soul that you are forgiven? What would it be like to know totally deep down I'm forgiven? I don't have to make up for it. I don't have to pay for it. Now, listen, I I said before that most of us don't feel guilt. Most of us probably experience shame or worth issues or burden or stress and all that stuff really is something's wrong with me and I'm trying to kind of get rid of that and that is guilt. But some of you maybe did actually come in here with guilt. And that is the conscious word and experience for whatever reason that that is. What would it be like to know I'm forgiven? That's what Jesus offers. That's what he says that he gives, that there's nothing you have to do to make up for it. There's nothing you have to do to solve it, to fix it. There's nothing. You're forgiven because Jesus died for you. And sometimes, maybe instinctively, the response is, yeah, but I'm this, or yeah, but I've done this. Exactly. That's why the words, even as harsh as they can be, to say, wait, are you saying that you're ungodly? Are you saying that you're a sinner? Are you saying that maybe even you're an enemy? That's who I died for, Jesus says. I want to prove my love. I don't just die for the good people, my family, my country. I die for people while they are sinners. What does God do with our guilt? He pays for it. He dies for it. He substitutes himself to forgive us. But listen, it's more than that. It's more than that. This is what Paul says, and look at, look at, he's making a point to tell you it's not just forgiveness. Let me just go back, because I don't want you to read that for one second. <clears throat> I, I jumped the gun. Sometimes, if, if you're a Christian, here's what you would say about what the gospel is or what Jesus did, and you may have learned this from a young age as a kid. You would say, Jesus died for my sins, right? Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus forgives me of my sins. That's true. It's not near enough. And I believe you will still struggle with all sorts of guilt and shame and worth and value issues if what you believe happened on the cross is Jesus died for my sins. He did, but Paul makes a point three times to say it was way more than that. He says, how much more then? We already read all this, but I'm just pointing out his points here. How much more then? How much more? And not only that, all talking about what he did on the cross. He says, it's more than that. It's beyond that. Jesus doesn't only forgive you. He didn't only die on the cross for your sins. What did he do? He says, we are saved by his life and we have received this reconciliation. This is the more than. It's not just forgiveness. It is what Paul says is that we are now declared righteous. That we are saved by his life. So we're saved by his death, meaning Jesus died for our sins and forgives us. So we don't have to die. So now we're forgiven, but we are saved by his life, which means he gives us his righteousness. The great reformer Martin Luther called this the the great exchange saying all of our guilt and all of our shame went to Jesus and he gave us all of his righteousness. 
So it's not just that we are guilt-free. It's not just that we are forgiven. It's not just that we are not guilty. It's that we are actually now saved by his life. We are righteous that we've received reconciliation. Listen, have you ever forgiven an enemy? Maybe you have, and that's hard to do. Maybe you have, and I remember I was at the park a year ago with my family. We were having a picnic. And uh, at this point, my, my daughter, especially at this point, she was deathly afraid of, of dogs, like deathly afraid of them. And I think as most places in Denver are public service, you know, announcement, you are supposed to have a leash on your dog. And, <laughs> okay, so dog comes running, we're picnic on the blanket, comes running right to her. And she's screaming, freaking out. And dog didn't, wasn't biting her or anything. It was probably wanting some food and being friendly, but she's freaking out. And the guy walks by and just kind of, oh, no big deal. I was like, dude, you're supposed to have your dog on a leash. And he just looks at me and goes, be the bigger man. Be the bigger man. And I shot him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and my mom helped me back. No, so I said... <laughs> Uh, let's delete this sermon for all legal purposes. Um, no, but I said, okay, tiny man. Um, no, I didn't say that either. But I, 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 so here's what he was asking me to do. And sometimes we feel this. We feel like, hey, there's somebody that's in the wrong. I can forgive them, right? It's hard to do, but like I can be the bigger man. And sometimes we feel that. Like, okay, I'm going to, they're in the wrong. I will let it go. I will forgive them. And I did in that moment. I was the bigger man, huge. And I, and I, and I, and I, I let it go and felt pretty good. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't say, you're right, man. Come, come join us. We're having a picnic, man. Come sit down. You, you want some salami? I didn't do that. Here's what Jesus does. It says he forgives us. And not only that, not just that, how much more we've received reconciliation. Which is, listen, you, some of you need to know this. God doesn't just forgive you. He accepts you. God doesn't just forgive you. He reconciles you. God isn't just the bigger man that says, hey, I'm a pretty merciful person, a pretty just person. I'm going to let this sin stuff go. I will forgive you. He says, now I... I, am, I want you. Now we're actually good. We're reconciled. I accept you. You are, listen, the Bible says that we are declared righteous, which means God looks at you through the eyes of Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. You're saved by his life, which means it's not your record that God sees. It's not your past that God sees. It's not your weekend that God sees. God looks at you and sees Jesus. He looks at you and says, you're my son. And I, we're reconciled. It's not just that I forgave you, man. We're good. You're in. That is so much more, Paul says three times. How much more? Not only forgiveness. You're declared accepted. You're declared in. You're declared mine. That's much more than just forgiveness. This is what God does with our guilt, that he forgives us, removing the penalty of sin. But he also accepts us, giving the privilege of relationship with him, restoring what was lost. 
before. Listen, if we, don't, if we don't have that, you know what we try to do? We try to build that up and manufacture it in some other way. See, even if you feel forgiven, but you don't feel accepted, you don't feel reconciled, you don't feel righteous, you don't feel good, we try to manufacture that. So we say, yeah, God forgives me, but I still feel like I need some sense of worthiness, acceptability. So we try in our jobs or we try in our our families, or we try in our marriages, or we try with our friends to say, man, I know I'm okay. I know I'm good. I know I'm accepted. I know I'm valuable because of this, of this. I'm, man, I'm really trying to be a good mom. I'm really trying to be a good dad. I'm really trying to work hard. I'm really trying to be a good friend. And we try to build our righteousness. We would say we're forgiven, but we're trying to build our acceptability. But we're left feeling insecure because we're never quite sure that we have acceptance. We're never quite sure that we are in. We're never quite sure that God says, yes, I delight in you, you're mine, we're good now. Which is why we're so insecure. We need that little heart button so bad. Jesus says, you're in. What if you knew in your heart, not just that you were totally forgiven, but what if you knew totally accepted. What if you knew I'm totally in? I'm totally accepted. What would that feel like? To be absolutely secure and going, I'm, I'm in. I don't have to fight for it. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to, I'm totally accepted. If you're in Jesus, you are. This is what he says his love is. A forgiving love, an accepting, reconciling love. Last thing, though, is this. What do we do with our guilt? Because as a Christian, you might say, yes, okay, I I receive that. That's what God did with my guilt. He forgives me. He accepts me. But I still feel guilty sometimes. I still feel that... I still feel my fight for worth or value. I still feel my real guilt of stuff I did. I still feel that. So what do I do when that's there? What do I do when I'm feeling insecure? What do I do when I'm feeling low? What, what do I actually do? And, and this, and this is true if you're just getting started in faith or you've been a Christian for a long time and you're not sure where you are, maybe if you're there, this is both what we do initially and how we ongoingly use what God has done in our life. So whether that's from actions that you've done, that you go, man, I am guilty. I did this. Or it's just those feelings of guilt that are under the surface where it expresses itself and feeling low or feeling defensive or what do we do with our guilt? I'm going to look at two different Psalms here to help us see how we pray, how we actually how we actually come to God than when we're feeling this way. Here's the first thing we do. We turn to God. Here's what this psalm says. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring to your servants, bring joy to your servants' life because I appeal to you. Lord, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my plea for mercy. This is, the step, this is step one. You turn to God. Instead of turning to yourself, so you're feeling low, 
or you're feeling guilty, most of the time our instinct is to turn to ourselves and say, no, I'm not that bad, or no, I am okay. Or to say, okay, I'll make up for that. Okay, I'll handle that. Okay, I'll fix it next time. Okay, it'll be different. And we're, we talk to ourselves, or we turn to ourselves, or we try to improve ourselves. Here's step one to get rid of your guilt, whether you objectively need forgiveness or it's just those feelings that are there, to turn to God, to call to him. Say, God, I, I need you. I need to transfer my trust away from myself and my ability to fix things and change things and transfer my trust to you. To say, I need you. I call to you all day long. I appeal to you. Listen, I, I would ask you even just right now to pray if you feel any of this guilt or whether it's real or it's stuff that's in there of, you know, you're trying to build your righteousness in some way, but it's not quite working. So you feel low is to even now just say to God, I appeal to you. I need you. I call to you. Let's be done with me. Let's be done with me trying to figure it out. Just say, God, I I want you. To know that we are helpless and need him. And what posture do you think God has for you when you come to him like that? What posture do you think God has? I, I love what he says. He says he's ready to forgive. He's not like, oh man, I love that. He's ready. Like what is, what, when you think of God's posture towards you right now, what do you think? When you think of how God views you right now, whatever it is that's going on, when you think of God and, and how he's kind of, where he's at with you, he says, I'm ready to forgive. I'm not ready to go, ha ha, I knew it. I'm not ready to jump on you. I'm not ready to lecture you. I'm not ready to say, yeah, I've been waiting for you to say that. I'm ready to forgive. Now, what a beautiful thing. If you knew God is ready to forgive, that that's his heart, that that's his posture, that you can come to him, you can appeal to him, and he is standing ready to forgive, doesn't that change the desire to come to him, knowing already what it's going to be like? He says, I'm ready to forgive. And a little bit further down, I, I love this in the psalm, he says, you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Turn to me. I love that language. He's closing out his psalm and he asks God, turn to me. Because you know when you've got kind of relational discord with somebody, I just kind of put in, in Google images, this is just a stupid clip art picture, but it's, it's this, I, I put in, I think, marriage fight. This was number three, okay, so... There you go. And, and that's kind of the image, though, of like a fight, right? Is we're like back-to-back, -back, or maybe you're not back-to-back, -back, but there's some sort of physical body posture that's away from somebody, right? Maybe your head's down. Maybe there's not eye contact. Maybe it's arms crossed. But there's something that is, I am, I am not open to you. I don't want your aura or your presence getting on me. Like I'm closed away from you in some sense. And sometimes in marriage or with whoever it is that we might be in some beef with, some drama with, we were 
the hardest part is if if I'm if I'm this girl, the hardest part is doing this, right? It's just to, that first, like, I'm moving now to turn towards you. Or if my eyes are down, the hardest part can just be to pick your head up and make eye contact. The hardest part can be to give the hug. The hardest part can be to move from this, and you're talking with someone, and then to go, okay. That, that turning towards can be the hardest part. And I love, I love that David gives us this image of God saying he turns towards us. We sang it earlier about God turning to us. The Father's arms are wide open. That God's posture to us, God's posture to us in our sin is to turn towards us to say, all of me is ready to receive all of you. All of me is ready to totally reconnect with you. So that's all step one. Step one is to turn to God, to appeal to him, to turn away from ourselves to him. And then second is to confess. He, he says in this psalm, listen to my plea for mercy which is to actually say, God, I've got some issues I'm, I need to confess to you. God, I've got some stuff I need to bring to you. Sometimes we know, we feel conviction that there's sin and our immediate reaction is to try to change. But it should start with saying, God, I need to confess to you. I need to actually bring it to you. I need to actually ask for your help and tell you where my heart is. If you want to be close to God, if you want to be close to God, it's, it's paradoxical. To embrace God, you actually have to embrace your sin. And I don't mean embrace it by keep doing it, I just mean to own it. If you want to embrace God, you have to embrace your sin. One of the most beautiful songs about God's forgiveness and his grace that the church has sung now for hundreds of years, Amazing Grace. Say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How often do we call ourselves a wretch? And probably not that often. But beautiful noise and beautiful lyrics of praise of, that, that has connected with so many people of amazing grace only comes if we say, I'm a wretch. I'm a slave. The man that wrote that, John Newton, was a slave trader and an awful person. And Jesus saved him. And some of his last words on his deathbed were, I am a great sinner but he's a great savior. See, if you want to be close to God, if you want to feel his embrace, we've also got to own our sin and say, God, I am a sinner. The closer we get to our sin often is the closer that we get to our savior. This is what he says that is needed is confession. In a room this size, I have to believe just from life experience that there's some of you in here that know there's things that you need to confess to God that you haven't. 
There's things you need to confess to other people that you haven't. That there's hidden sin in your life. And you know who you are. The Holy Spirit's speaking to you now, even letting you know that, yeah, talking about you. It starts with confession. God has already proved his love that he died for people while still sinners. God already proved his love that he didn't die for the good people. He died for the people that say, I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy. So we turn to God and then we confess to God. When we confess, that begins to release the power of sin on our life. When we confess, that begins to break the power of sin in our life. Third thing is this. This is from another psalm. He says, Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what's right and teaches them his way. Look at what he he says here. Remember me because of your goodness, Lord. This is drawing on what we already looked at. He is such an audacious prayer. He's saying, God, I want you to remember your compassion and your love. It's been around for a long time, God. I've heard about it in the stories. I've, I've seen it in history. I want you to remember that. And then, God, don't remember my sin. I mean, can you imagine getting pulled over for a ticket, you know, or, or for speeding or something by a police officer and then saying, listen, don't remember my speeding. Remember you. You're a good person. Treat me based on how good you are. Were you speeding? Remember me based on your driving record. But he says, remember me because of your goodness. Don't remember me based on me. Remember me based on you. Sometimes you might see this in a movie or something. Someone is favorable to someone's child, and they say, this is only because me and your dad were close, or something like that, right? It's only because of your father. And they're, they're imputing some value of this person to this person. Saying, because of this person, I'll treat you better than you actually are. I'll treat you like them. I'll treat you like the relationship I have with them. That's what he's appealing to. This is what we looked at in Romans, that Jesus actually does this to us, and the Father actually then looks at us because of Jesus. So when you need to get rid of your guilt, you go to God, you turn to him, you confess, and then you pray this crazy prayer. And you say, God, remember me, not because of my sin, but remember me, which means treat me, act in my life, be favorable to me, organize my life, lead me according to how good you are which is exactly what Jesus said on the cross is the more than, or what Paul said on the cross was the more than, that he forgives you, but he also now accepts you and you're declared righteous and you have reconciliation. It's unfair and it's beautiful. So that you can come to Jesus and say, look, don't treat me based on how good of a parent I am or how good of a husband or a wife I am or how good of a friend I am. Don't treat me based on how good of a Christian I am. Treat me based on how good you are. 
Remember me because of your goodness. And then the last thing that is on here is he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what's right and teaches them his way. So what do we do with our guild as we ask him to do this for us? We actually submit to him and say, okay, God, I, 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 I don't want these feelings of guilt, but I also want to be free in my life from sin. So teach me. Lead me. Lead me in what's right. Teach me your way. So are you ready to submit your life to God and say, I don't want guilt, but I don't want sin, God, because I want to be with you and you're good. You want freedom from guilt? You want freedom from burden or lowness or shame or worth or fighting against? You want freedom from that? We, we all do. This is the way. We come to Jesus and we can experience an absolute security, an absolute forgiveness, an absolute acceptance that allows our hearts to, instead of burdened and down and unsure and back and forth, to go, I'm confident that in God's love, he has grace to me. In God's love, he says, you're mine. In God's love, I'm forgiven. When we take communion, that's what we're remembering that he proved his love, his body broken, his blood shed to forgive, to accept, to reconcile. So let's receive and let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you forgive every sin present in this room. I pray that you would help people even now to feel you turning towards them. You would help people in here that struggle with guilt or struggle with, am I doing enough? Am I enough? Am I doing it right? Can you forgive that thing? God, just tell them yes. Your word has said yes. Put that on their hearts for them to receive even now that your blood is for them, your acceptance is for them. We need you. We appeal to you. We come to you. We confess, God, that sin is in our life. And you already know it and you already see it, but you say, and we ask you even now together, remember us, though, God, according to your goodness. Remember us according to Jesus. And we know that you do. So I pray, let us and help us to submit to you. Teach us your way, God. In your name.